You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Nakamura, a reporter here at The Post covering the Justice Department and civil rights. Today in our Race in America series, we're joined by Erica Moritsugu, a deputy assistant to President Biden and a senior liaison for the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. So welcome to Washington Post Live, Erica. Thanks, David. It's um, an honor to be here with you. Great to talk to you again. Uh, let's jump right in. You know, this today marks the opening of uh, Asian American, uh, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander History Month. And that's quite a mouthful. And I think it kind of goes to the idea that this community that you represent in the White House uh, is quite diverse. Uh, it's not just one monolithic uh, entity. Uh, and I wanted to start with a little bit about your background because you were raised mostly in Hawaii to uh, a paternal side of the family that is of Japanese descent, a maternal side of Chinese descent. I wonder if you could talk a little bit to our viewers about your upbringing and how that sort of contributed to you going into sort of advocacy and some of your public service work. No, thanks for the question, David. And again, it's just an honor to, to share share this space with you today. Um, I was I was very lucky. I didn't know it at the time um, to grow up in Hawaii. Um, in a pluralistic um, majority minority community um, in a multi-generational household. Uh, and with all of those experiences, it's really informs what brings me to this work, even though it wasn't necessarily a linear pathway, but, um, and, and it is a privilege um, to have grown up in a, in a community where nothing seems impossible. There were so many examples in Hawaii of successful national leaders and local leaders and in politics and in governments, local government and academia and in business, that it never seemed like such a stretch to me to be as what my mom and dad would have taught me to be as useful and helpful as possible, even without fanfare or, you know, prestige, um, but just to, to, you know, make, make, make a pathway. Um, that was fulfilling and um, and impactful, and you know part of that is is being um, an awakening that I, that I had when when I graduated from high school and moved to the continent um, to work for the federal government in the Department of Justice's um, typing pool, um, and then staying um, on the East Coast for college, where um, I suddenly found myself, not only that I was a minority, um, but I would walk into a room, a classroom or a conference room and find myself being the only Asian American woman and sometimes the only woman and sometimes the only person of color in the room. And, you know, David, I mean, like this was um, an experience that is not unique to me. It was just a little bit later in my life. I mean, you grew up biracial in the heartland um, of America and and now it was my turn to, to have that um, eye-opening experience. I also had more examples than most um, of public service um, because of my family. Um, my mom and my dad in both of their very different ways, you know, taught me the value of, um, at, with their own examples of being useful and helpful. My mom is a small business owner, used that as a platform for community organizing. And my dad, who was the first ever Asian American Deputy Surgeon General actually served as Acting Surgeon General um, under two presidents, a Republican and a Democrat, as the first Asian American um, Surgeon General, first and obviously not the last, right? Um, and I also come from a family of military service. Um, 
my in World War II when um, when we entered um, into the war after Pearl, the attacks on Pearl Harbor, my grandpa and his two brothers served. My grandpa was um, in the military intelligence service. Um, and was awarded a bronze star for his valor in the Pacific Theater. And I had my great uncle, Curly Nakai, who um, served with valor and actually got, got a congressional gold medal. We have two congressional gold medals in our family. And at the same time, um, and these are all things that I hold because these were the households that I grew up in with these stories and these examples. My great, great uncle Yasuichi, my grandpa's, my great grandpa's little brother was actually interrogated imprisoned and then transported to an incarceration camp in Santa Fe, New Mexico, while all of his other family members were serving and fighting and some actually died in service of the country. Um, and so you can say that public service kind of came naturally to me um, through the luck of growing up where I did. Um, not to mention that I'd, I'd come, when I came to the continent, um, to live on the East Coast, um, I came to the civil rights movement through volunteer work and not through Asian American spaces, but through black and Jewish spaces. Um, and, um, you know, spent my time volunteering mostly until I found that there was actually get paid to do this, uh -huh. um, to fight for social justice for traditionally marginalized communities. Uh, I also had um, extraordinary leaders and public services, servants as my mentors and, supervisors and influencers who, who not just inspired me um, and many, many others, um, but believed in me to execute on their vision, like, you know, Senator Harry Reid from Nevada and Senator Duckworth from Illinois, Julian Castro, who was the Secretary of HUD when I served there in the Obama administration, our beloved Senator Danny Acosta from our home state of Hawaii. And these are, these are folks who tied together everything that I'd learned um, growing up in Hawaii um, about you know, being truly committed to principle and also having the nimbleness um, to find other pathways when there are blockages and truly censoring the people that, you know, they had signed up to serve and also lifting up and elevating others, um, especially young people. Kind let of, me, kind let of me, like, let me ask President you about something. Let me ask you about something you said there, though. Um, you know, I, I had I, you and I shared the fact that my father and uh, grandparents uh, were in the uh, Topaz, Utah internment camp, which I was called at that growing up. You called it incarceration camp. There's, I know, there's a movement to um, call these uh, what happened to the Japanese Americans during World War II incarceration. Tell me why you use that term. What, why that's important? Well, it's 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 based on two things, and this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm really lucky to have the platform. Um, to be able to, to tell these stories that are not known or to explain. I love it when people ask me when they're confused about a change in nomenclature or an addition of acronym letters to an already clumsy acronym. Um, but incarceration, uh, I think more traditionally, um, the euphemism had been internment, which seemed a little soft. And so the community, the survivors of the camps and their descendants, it is their preference. And we should be in a practice of, of asking the communities that are directly impacted what their preferences and why, and to implement and hew to it. Um, the second one is a little bit more technical, um, and it's part of the storytelling that has been lost um, and invisibilized, which is that um, internment camps are actually for enemy alien combatants or en enemy aliens. And many, many, many of the 
folks who were incarcerated during World War II and, you know, following Executive Order 9066 that President Roosevelt had signed um, were U.S. citizens. And so internment from a technical standpoint is um, actually technically inaccurate and masks the fact that these were American citizens who had their rights stripped away. Um, and, and are, so are there changes to... Is that an official change in government documents and policy at all? That that word. So it is. It is. It is absolutely the practice of this administration. It's um, embodied in our style guide that the White House Initiative on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders has promulgated throughout the government, and the National Park Service actually was the um, lead on this. Um, you know, having stewardship over many of these sites um, to have made that change and done the deep research and not just dictated or, or pushed out why, what we should say, but also the why. Okay, so, you know, I wanted to go uh, to two years ago, I met you for the first time, I think on the roof of the W Hotel, where there was an event for Asian Americans, uh, including some uh, high profile ones, uh, the actor Daniel Day, uh, uh, Daniel Day Kim was there. Um, and I think the idea there was to sort of uh, introduce some of the folks working in the administration on these kind of issues uh, with other um, figures who were also pushing that in the, in the community. And um, there were other activists and, and, and such there. At the time, I wrote a piece about you, and you were new to this job. It was the first time, I think, in, uh, for this sort of Asian-American liaison in the White House. Um, it had come after some pressure from your former boss, Tammy Duckworth. Uh, and, and others in, in Congress to uh, point a high profile Asian American. Um, at the time though, you were still settling in and you weren't sure kind of what the, the boundary of the job was. What have you focused on most in the past uh, year and a half so far? No, I'm glad to catch up with you on that because I, I think about the, that conversation a lot um, where, you know, um, I, first of all, just just to clarify, I'm not the, the first liaison um, in the White House. I'm, I'm the first, to sit in the chief of staff's office as a senior commissioned officer um, with a narrow focus on the Asian American Native Point and Pacific Islander communities, but a broad kind of landscape to, to work with, um, both on policy and engagement, which is an important um, kind of combination because the engagement informs policy and policy should be communicated back to the communities. Um, when, when, when we first when I first started, it was uh, it was with the spirit of, of building something new, not creating something because the president and the vice president have always been committed to an understanding of the Asian American Native Point and Pacific Islander communities. But the mandate for me was to build on it and to build it out um, with, you know, no playbook, um, but a lot of high expectations. Um, and so since then, um, you know, there was... Uh, it's, it's through the work of policy and, and engagement that informed a lot of what we were able to be um, working towards and making progress towards. Um, and some of it was responsive to extraordinary things that had happened and others were, you know, those kind of through fairs of, of intentional inclusion and empathy and allyship um, that was the way that the president would ask me to execute on his vision. Um, and, and so, you know, I just point super briefly, David, to the, the article that you wrote after the Oscar suite, where, um, you know, there's a lot to celebrate um, in terms of the progress that we've been making, um, particularly with legislation in the past two years, and now in implementation phase, but also going out into community and recognizing that there's tragedy 
but also also recognizing that tragedy doesn't define us. We bring back, so when I travel outside of the Beltway, which is an important part of what I do because it informs the policy work that I do, I get the feedback and the real-time um, input and hopes and expectations and unique challenges in a very diverse community um, and bring it back to the decision-making table to, to make sure that it, um, I'm being a proper representative of our communities to the president and then going back out and making sure that that's not the last time that I've ever talked to them to um, be the president's representative back to the community. Let me ask you about that. You were... You were, I know you were in uh, Monterey Park, California recently with the president, I believe in March, um, to do a gun, a gun control event. Um, that's in the wake of two mass shootings in the Asian American community by Asian American perpetrators and Asian American victims there in California, uh, back to back. Um, you were with the president there. I think you also went uh, without the president, but to uh, mark the uh, anniversary of the uh, mass shooting at the spas in Atlanta that killed six uh, people of Asian descent there. Um, I wanted to, if you could talk about a little bit how often you get to see or brief the president. Uh, and then what, you know, we talk about Monterey uh, Park. Did you stay and talk to um, residents there about some of their concerns of the immigrant community there? And, and then it, did you take that back to the White House and what specific things have you, have you advocated for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think that that's one of the, the great examples of this, you know, dynamic um, policy and engage, community engagement and being the president's representative on the ground, but then also being able to bring the voices and the needs and the challenges and even the celebrations and joys of our community back to the decision-making table. Um, so back in, um, in January, um, as soon as we'd heard about um, the shooting and not very much was known yet except for the, the horrific deaths and some, some sense of who the victims were, um, I flew out to Monterey Park because the president and vice president had asked me to, they weren't immediately available. And that's where, you know, engaging with the local community, the local leaders, the partners and the allies and the coalitions um, and the service providers who've been doing this work on the ground for so long. That's where, for example, the fear and terror that they were already shaken by because of the spike in deadly anti-hate violence anti-Asian hate violence, um, you know, was, was that, that they were holding um, and, and the fears that this was a hate crime, a hate motivated incident, um, to hear that, you know, they, they were interested and in, in very avidly concerned about, you know, mental health resources and um, abating the gun violence and gun deaths and um, wanting to have more culturally competent services and more accessible services to federal government. And when the president, and, and then of course the vice president uh, was able to loosen up her schedule to come down and that's when she met with the families of the victims. And this is just a couple of days afterwards, the families were, these were private meetings, uh, but a real generosity of their time to, to, to share their stories and their grief and their pain and to ask the vice president for help. So when we come back to Monterey Park and the president decided to do his gun violence prevention executive order announcement, he selected Monterey Park in part because of what we'd heard and learned um, from the January um, trips and meetings and the follow-up that we've done since then and between them and have continued to do. Um, we've rolled out um, in-language resources um, and um, a special guide for new communities in trauma. I mean, Monterey Park is, is 
a great example of a beautiful community where belonging and inclusion, um, visibility was not, it, you know, was, was not as much of an issue because it was a place of safety and community. Um, they were not prepared for a tragedy of this nature or the national attention or international attention because who, who would be? There's no plan that you can put in place just in case a horrific tragedy like this, um, you know, befalls your community. Let me ask you, uh, you mentioned anti-Asian hate. It's been well reported over the past few years uh, during the coronavirus about a backlash perhaps that's against uh, Chinese Americans, really Asian Americans more broadly, uh, that seems to be reflected in, in rising statistics around anti-Asian hate crimes and anti-Asian hate incidents and rhetoric and harassment. Um, I wondered about your influence in the White House on this point. There are activists I've talked to say, look, you know, the climate around, even as we move out of the, you know, the, the heart of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, the climate around tensions in U.S.-China policy could continue to contribute to this backlash and, and fear of, of Asian Americans. And I wonder how, what, if you've advocated for anything along these lines about how the White House should talk about this, uh, because uh, there is, you know, both, you know, sort of bipartisan uh, sense that uh, the country needs to do more to protect itself and its its interests against uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. Have you had a, a voice on this and what have you said? Yeah, I mean, and that's actually something that, um, you know, I stepped into on day one on the job two years ago because um, a lot of this was well underway and, uh, and you know, there's it's not an on-off switch that you can easily solve. But one of the things that um, I hope that you've seen in not just words, but also demonstrated in actions and practice is much more care in the way that we talk about competitiveness with the PRC or Beijing, um, what we worry about and how we're addressing national security risks and things of that nature. Uh, Cause you know, I mean, you know, there was an old, old adage that um, six and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt us. Um, it words can hurt, um, especially when there's a permission structure that's that's granted from you know the highest office in the land. Um, it emboldens folks, um, and and so we we have been um, working very diligently um, to um, make sure that when we do speak about the PRC, that we refer to the government, not the people, because it does have um, a deep and an observable and sometimes deadly impact on our diaspora here and elsewhere outside of China, the PRC, or um, and and to you know use our words responsibly, even if that's not what we mean, um, but to really broaden our sense of what the impacts are, both in terms of empowering and emboldening people who have hate in their hearts and want to lash out in discriminatory, bigoted, and sometimes violent ways, but also what kind of leadership is necessary to instill hope and confidence in, in not just the Chinese diaspora or Chinese American community here, um, but for um, folks who are of Northeast Asian descent or Northeast Asian presenting. Um, and it's also the case that once once these this permission structure to like show your ugliestness, um, you know, was was out there, the president has said, um, you know, you can't just sweep hate under the carpet, especially when the carpet's been pulled back. Um, the only way to move forward is together, first of all, and second of all, to to start a journey of reconciliation and healing, um, because there really isn't any. Um, 
you know, sweeping it under the rug anymore. This is obviously still enduring and sustained. Um, communities are still living in terror and fear and this kind of existential crisis of um, not being um, welcomed, being a perpetual victim. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because of the difference in the distinction and the diversity within the Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Collective in the aggregate, um, how many of us um, experience this in different ways. And, um, and that's an important thing to name and honor as well, um, because, you know, we can be invisibilized. Um, I think our gonna... elders and our ancestors wanted to integrate and be invisible. But we can't stay invisible because we get scapegoated yeah. and and victimized in, in, a, in a moment. And, and that, it's that juxtaposition that I think leads to a lot of what animates um, what's happening in movement and community and government with all partners and all allies and coalition um, that um, and someone it's who, not the peak. It's just it, it energizes us to, to finally come out of the shadows because we don't stay in the shadows when they need somebody needs to be scapegoated. As someone who covered the White House, I know you're entering a, a campaign season. I think you're going to have a test on this, uh, you know, careful language on maybe on both sides. Um, China's often a scapegoat, in the, uh, you know, during these election cycles. Let me move on to another topic uh, dealing with the Asian American community broadly. Um, there, the there's a the Supreme Court is weighing two college cases related to affirmative action, uh, and the conservative majority is likely, I think, experts think, to overturn the ability of of higher education uh, programs to use. Uh, affirmative action as part of their, uh, you know, decision making on on entrance. Um, the uh, this is an interesting one for the Asian American community. I know that in, particularly in the Harvard case, um, some of the plaintiffs are Asian American groups, and I think there's a, you know, there's broad support for. Uh, I think polls have showed for uh, among Asian American groups for affirmative action, but there are Asian Americans and Chinese American groups on the West Coast that have been uh, pretty, you know, vocal about saying no. You know, we think this hurts us. This is discriminatory against Asian Americans in some cases. I mean, the data shows various points on this, but I'm wondering if you have spoken to those kind of groups, people with that view, even as the Biden administration and the Justice Department dropped a similar case after uh, President Biden took office against Yale, um, saying, no, we're not going to continue that challenge to Yale's affirmative action. Where do you, where do you stand on this? And where have you talked with these kind of uh, groups um, that support the overturning of this? And what do you say to them? Yeah, no, and and. This is um, one of the uh, opportunities and challenges of, of trying to be as accessible as possible. Um, I, I do get to talk to folks with a diversity of views, even ones that um, are in opposition to the administration's positions, even ones that are in opposition to my personal um, positions and, and what I've held and worked for um, for a long time, which is support for affirmative action. Um, and, you know, so, so I absolutely have had a lot of discussions with the diversity of viewpoints um, and lived experiences and stories and hopes and aspirations and disappointments um, over how this um, this case and this trend of case comes, especially when there is um, you know visible divide within the Asian American community. One of the things that's really important in these discussions is to to really listen to. All sides, and it's not just you know one, or it's not just black and white. It's not just one or the other. There's a lot of nuances in in, in between. Um, but to recognize the, the the benefits that affirmative action had for say Chinese Americans or Japanese Americans who benefited um, um, from the programs, um, but also expanding the way we look at again the Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community 
on a larger basis, naming and honoring the differences about how we're differently situated, depending on your geography, depending on your ethnicity, depending on what other identities um, you know define you, generational, um, your immigration story, um, all of those things would counsel us to look deeper into the Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Collective and see the constituent parts. Um, and recognize that Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, Southeast Asians, have not benefited and could benefit from this if we were more um, generous in zooming out and looking at the larger picture. You know, we're down to just a few seconds left, so I want to go to a quick lightning question, uh, maybe just yes or no, but um, I want to talk about Oscar So Asian. Uh, and has President Biden seen everything everywhere all at once? Have you pushed him to? And uh, if so, has he had any reaction to it? Um, so, I actually don't know the answer to that question. But, <laughs> How about you? Um, what did you see? He is, he is, he is avidly, avidly um, paying attention to the successes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Michelle Yeoh and Kiwan Kwan um, and, and the entire cast and successes and the, and the larger representation is definitely a part of the ethos that he operates in. Um, always wanting to, to learn and hear more. Um, and so, um, the, the celebrity platform that, that a lot of these successes, these very prominent successes have had, really does help to inform both, again, not just what we do, but how we do it, which is a partnership. Um, the celebrities um, with their extraordinary achievements, um, you know, have a different, different letter points than say the federal government does. Um, and so that's a really important thing to honor and acknowledge that um, we cannot do it alone, we need to do it together because we're stronger together. Where did you uh, where did you watch the Oscars and have you been in touch with any of the the cast at all? Do any events with the White House? I have not done any events with the White House yet. Um, it was uh, a, a, another moment where I was uh, occupied elsewhere, but uh, I watched the Oscars at home with my children. Oh, that's terrific! And how what was their reaction? Uh, they were um, very excited. They were very excited. Again, like they're gonna they're they're. Early, uh, teenagers, um, you know, growing up biracial in Washington, D.C., um, and they don't know how far we've come. And hopefully well, we don't. I, I have, I'm looking at my watch. I think we are unfortunately out of time. I have so many more questions for you. Then we can do a part two. But um, uh, thank you, Erica, so much for joining us here on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.